0: So first off, a great big hello. Let's give a great big hello to the PAW. It's so wonderful to have you with us. So we want to welcome you here. Um, Tonight is going to be interesting. So the content is a little controversial. Uh, Just saying, off the hop. Um, How many of you did not read your chapter? Such honesty. Love it. Okay, so that's that's really helpful to know. Um, so I'll try and cover as much ground as I'm able to, all right? Um, discover what makes you uniquely you. Uncover your ethnic mix, your distant relatives, and watch your story emerge. After all, the family story that your DNA tells is the story that leads to you. So says ancestry.com. To the growing millions of people who are, I got a brand new iPad here and it's not, yeah, having, people that are having their DNA tested to discover their ancestral roots. It's a really big deal nowadays. And I'm so sorry that Lisa Clark's not with us because I know Lisa had her DNA tested and I just wanted to hear all about it. Am I right that a lot of her DNA was Swedish? True story. Um, some of you may or may not know Lisa. She was on the worship team a few blueprints ago. She's like this dark, olive-complected beauty, jet black hair. And she went to Ancestry.com, had her DNA tested, and she came out hugely Swedish. <laughs> Don't know how that happened. And a small part Italian, but that's, quite frankly, what she looks. Also, Rosalie Block had her spit tested. And what were you predominantly? And aren't you, you're just a German girl from the country. English and Scottish, and you turned out Irish. (laughs) It's exciting. Has there, is there anyone else in this room who's had their spit tested? Nobody yet. Okay, probably you will, because now you know that you could, you too could be Swedish or Irish. My story is, and I've not had my spit tested, but we only know three generations on either side. My parent, my parents, my dad, and my mom. Um, all Dutch, Dutch, Dutch. Way back as far as we know. Um, and this, uh, this recently I went to California to visit my, um, Dutch relatives and was hanging out with my, really my only, surviving aunt that could tell us some stories. So we were just peppering her with stories about our ancestry. And my goodness, I learned some things, stories of human brokenness, tragedy, serious family sin, dysfunction, but also extreme kindness and even heroism. I was deeply moved to hear um, that my father's mother and father had hidden two Jewish men during World War II in their hay barn, which was round, and it was, you know, what the first layer in was all hay that they used to gather from the windows outside with the pitchfork, and they created a refuge inside the hay barn for two Jewish men for two years, while they were occupied by Nazis on the farm who lived and took over the main floor of their home. Meanwhile, on the other side of my family, on my mother's side, we found out that we had a dark family secret, and that is that we are in fact Jewish. And that my grandmother's mother was Jewish, and this was a secret because this was World War II. So this was not something my grandmother was letting anybody know anytime soon. Which, because Judaism is passed down maternally, that makes me Jewish and my four daughters. So those are all kind of just interesting facts. Um, that I learned not too long ago. So I come from a long line of very strong women, broad shouldered, <laughs> Dutch arms. We call them stevige Armen. Is there anybody Dutch in here? Yes, Joyce, you know what that means. stevige Armen means sturdy. Strong minded. Ron has a joke about wooden shoes, wooden head, wouldn't listen. Intelligent, generous, resourceful, women who stood up under enormous trials lived through wars, bombings, enemy occupation, massive life changes, emigrations, persevered in days of lack and days of plenty. They azered, all of them, family businesses, and endured marital strife, disappointment, and loss. They were hardworking, self-sacrificing women who upheld and nurtured the next generation, and I had really big wooden shoes to fill. I was raised believing that strength was an asset, That being strong-minded was a virtue, and those values were instilled into me from my earliest memories right into high school until, at 16, I became a Christian. The church I began to attend had a culture within it that, though they valued and esteemed and respected women very highly, women weren't invited into leadership roles And in truth, the women who had been in leadership roles were asked to step down from those leadership roles unless it was Sunday school. And women who appeared to carry leadership gifting or who had opinions, strong opinions, tended to be criticized. And the criticism was that so-and-so, she is a strong woman. And I heard this phrase over and over again from a number of people in that church. And I began to think, oh, I guess being a strong woman is not such a good thing. That was a brand you just didn't want to wear. And as a new Christian, I was earnest about wanting to be and do the right thing. So this was a very confusing message for me. The women who were branded as strong women were women that I actually really admired and my mother, who was a strong woman, recoiled at the idea and chafed at the mold, no surprise there, and I would hear about this at home all the time. She would often be found talking with the pastor or writing him letters, and in fact, my sister told me last week when I, I saw her um, that she was doing some house cleaning, and she found a stack of letters that my mother had written. And I was like, send me those, but she had purged and gotten rid of them, it's probably good. But it was a tension that we lived with. Now, I'm positive that there was a whole lot more going on under those stories that I heard than I was really aware of. But I just was really grappling with what does it mean to be a woman of God and what does a woman of God really look like? I would read that passage in 1 Peter 3 verse 4 about the woman having an unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in God's sight And I felt that I came up very short. I was neither gentle nor quiet, no matter how hard I tried. There was a girl in our young group, and this is truth, not fiction, who I really admired, I emulated. Oh, I wanted to be like her. She was gentle. She was sweet. She was mild. And her name, are you ready? Susan Serene. (laughs) it's true her name was Susan Serene and she was very serene and I was not I was cut from a different cloth and I was wearing the big Dutch wooden shoes of my ancestors and they made a lot of noise can anyone relate to this problem just a few What does a woman of God look like? Without losing the heart and the depth of Peter's statement about women clothed in gentleness, with a quietness and a serenity of spirit, how do we manifest and reflect the fact that God is strong? And if we bear his image, then he wants us to be strong. And what does that even mean? And what does that even look like? The word of God is full of these women. Only we pass by them so quickly that we don't get the message Tamar is one of these women. If you think we're interested in our ancestry, the Jewish people have taken it to an extreme. They are all about genealogy. This is the utmost importance. The reason for this interest in pedigrees was that the Jews set the greatest possible store on purity of lineage. For example, any priest was bound to produce an unbroken record of his pedigree stretching all the way back to Aaron. And if he got married, his wife had to produce a pedigree of her purity of lineage for at least five generations. In the New Testament times, these genealogical records were actually kept by the Sanhedrin and Herod the Great, remember him, was always despised by the pure-blooded Jews because he was actually half an Edomite and he was enraged by this and so he had all the records destroyed so nobody could track his heritage. Throughout the Old Testament, it is not normal to find the names of women in Jewish pedigrees at all. The women had no legal rights. She was regarded not as a person but as a thing, a possession of either her father or her husband and at his disposal to do with what he liked in the regular. And in the regular form of morning prayer, the Jews thanked God that he had not made them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And this is a true fact. The Jews trace their heritage through their male ancestors. That's just how it was. So when we open the Bible in the New Testament to the very first book of Matthew, written by one of the apostles himself, from the most Jewish perspective of all the gospels, it's, it's not just surprising, but as the biblical commentator William Barclay puts it, it's an extraordinary phenomenon to discover there the names of four women, unheard of. And not just any four women, but kind of dubious women, women who were not from the pure lineage of Israel. And Tamar is listed there. And the reason I say Tamar and not Tamar is because I Googled it. And I became an expert in how to pronounce this name. And if I was really going to do it properly, it would sound like this. Tamar. I would roll my R because that is the Middle Eastern pronunciation, not Tamar, as one of the other websites called it. It's Tamar. Tamar is listed there, and she is perhaps the most brazen, but also the most branded by the church. If Hagar got a bad rap, which we talked about, then Tamar has been vilified. And I read a whole bunch of commentaries on Tamar, and the one biblical scholar referred to her as, quote, the wicked, incestuous, adulterous Tamar, end quote. Another described her as being, quote, notorious for her evil character. And at first glance, that's precisely how she looks. Carolyn James says this, posing as a prostitute falls so far outside the scope of respectability, it has always been a challenge to try to salvage anything useful from her story. And she's certainly no candidate for a role model. But if you don't understand the context of what really was going on here, it's easy to draw that conclusion. In fact, if this story was made into a movie, it would be restricted. Sexual content, violence, and completely unsuitable for children. Matthew himself, dear Matthew, apostle of Jesus Christ, under the inspirational leading of the Holy Spirit, includes this woman by name and gives her a place of remembrance in the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Messiah for all of history to read. But before we look at Tamar, we're going to take a quick look at Judah because we need to understand the context. What's the first thing you think of when you hear the name Judah? Who said that? Somebody said worship? Marlene. Lion of Judah on the throne. Remember that one? That's really old. Where'd that come from? I shout your name, let it be known. Remember that one? My generation? Uh, what's, he's the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain. Surely you all know that one. Right. We think of, we think of worship. We think of something exciting. And we know that Judah means praise, so Judah had to be an absolutely incredible guy. And we know that the Bible speaks more of the tribe of Judah than any other single tribe of Israel. Judah was Abraham's great-grandson. Jacob, Isaac's son, had 12 sons. But for some reason, the lineage of the Lord Jesus was to come through Judah. This is very interesting because he wasn't the oldest son. That was Reuben. And he also wasn't the favorite son. That was Joseph. And then later on, Benjamin. In Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob prophesies before his death about his sons. And he says this to Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. This prophetic conviction is traced all the way through the Bible to Revelation 5.5, where it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Judas sounds like he's pretty awesome. Not at all. He was not awesome at all. In fact, he was a pretty wicked guy. He was bitterly jealous and he had a murderous heart. So if you look in Genesis 37, you'll begin to see the story of Joseph and it goes on for a while how Joseph goes into into Egypt but then you come to this chapter 38 and this like this little interruption I think Carol and James says that too There's like this suddenly out of nowhere talking about Joseph we get this picture of Judah Judah in Genesis 37 and his brothers despised their brother Joseph why basically jealousy they couldn't stand him. They thought he was a cocky upstart. He would share these dreams about his his gloriousness, and they thought he had a big ego, and they wanted him gone. So they plotted together to actually murder him. That's some kind of jealousy. That's not just your garden-variety sibling rivalry. They were bent on murdering him. When he came to see them one day, when they were out, they conspired to kill him. Reuben intervened, but it was Judah that suggested that they sell him to some Midianite travelers for 20 shekels of silver. And that's how Joseph wound up in Egypt a slave, Judah. Genesis 38 then gives us the story of Judah's descent into spiritual depravity. Imagine for a moment the burden of guilt that he actually carried because It doesn't matter who you are. When you've done something wrong, morally wrong, you carry that within you. His actions had devastated his father, Jacob, ruined the life of his brother, and he was in the grip of the darkness of secrecy and unconfessed sin, which would have eroded and gnawed at his soul. And you do one of two things in that condition. You either break and confess or you harden your heart. And that's exactly what Judah did. He was a hard and callous man. He left home and he moved to Adullam and he married a Canaanite woman. A big indication that he had backslidden and turned away from God. This is the first time any chosen seed of Israel selected a wife outside of the preferred families of the patriarchs. Judah, number one backslidden son. The Canaanites were considered to be accursed, and so this act was shocking, and it was shameful. The promised seed was now no longer considered pure. And here's where Tamar comes in. Judah chose another Canaanite woman to marry his son, Ur. He likely made some kind of advantageous deal, leveraging power or money to acquire this young woman for his son. Little did he know what kind of a woman he had chosen. Though he would no doubt find his choice regrettable, this woman was to factor very big in his life and in his future and in the generations that proceeded out of Judah's line. Tamar would have been introduced at that point to all things Israel, including all things Abrahamic, the covenant, the promise, the blessing to this people and how they were going to prosper and grow to be innumerable she would have also been introduced to the greatest period of misery of her entire life. Ur is described as a wicked man. If Judah was bad, Ur was the black belt. Whatever the complaints might be that you might have towards a man in your life, this guy would make everything pale in comparison. She was experiencing a seriously tormented marriage this wasn't just unhappy this was suffering we read that Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight and so the Lord killed him I'll just say that again Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight and so the Lord killed him I mean we don't really have a grid for that do we no we cannot wrap our heads around that one This is the first record. Remember, we talked about this before. Whenever there's a first time, it's important. Right here is the first time any person on earth got killed by God. Er, Judah's firstborn son was killed. We don't know how God did it. We only know that he did it. But Tamar's nightmare was far from over. If She was honor-bound to preserve her husband's name. She couldn't just go off and marry the Canaanite of her dreams, put, on a, put a really bad marriage behind her, and move on with her life. No, the nightmare escalated. If you've read the chapter, you will have learned about what's called the Leveret Law. Carolyn James really explains it well. It was an ancient custom designed to carry on the family line in the event of a death of a childless man. The dead man's brother would be required to marry the widow and impregnate her. The son born from that union would, be inherited, would inherit the name and the estate of the deceased. Judah demanded that his second son, Onan, and Tamar create a child. Tamar, obviously, being a possession of Judah, had no say in the matter. And this son, hopefully son, who was born from Tamar through Onan, would actually belong to Ur, the deceased son, who, as the firstborn son, was going to get a double portion of his father's entire estate, meaning that Onan and the other son would only get one quarter each. So you see, the problem was, if they had a child for Ur's sake, Onan would get less of the pie, right? Do you understand? So Onan complied, but what he basically did was he just took advantage of Tamar in every possible way, using her and humiliating her. And it said, the Bible says that whenever he was with her, and that doesn't mean just one time, that means whenever. Habitually, this went on and on and on and on and on. He would spill his seed in order for her not to be able to conceive a child. Every act, every time was an act of violation, filled with mockery. Can you imagine that act and then not allowing conception to take place? It was an act of mockery. Imagine the shame she must have felt, the degradation, the stripping of her dignity each time this wicked brother withheld from her, even though he was honor-bound to give her an heir. Though she had to submit to this, honor bound to produce an heir, Onan did not. It also revealed Onan's complete lack of love for his own brother to produce an heir for his brother. No surprise there, right? What a legacy Judah left. Judah selling his own brother into slavery. Onan was no different. This thing was just going from bad to worse. He was living in an appalling self-gratification and selfish agenda. Producing an heir for his dead brother meant a thinner piece of the pie for him, and he wasn't about to advance that plan. If we don't understand the background and the context of this story, we miss the full significance of what this meant historically, and we are at risk for misrepresenting Tamar. But here's where we get an indication about what God thinks of things and that he is conspicuously active in the situation. Genesis 38:10 tells us what Onan did was wicked in the Lord's eyes. And so he killed him too. Son number 1 gone. Son number 2 gone. Where's the Messiah coming from, ladies? Whose line? Okay, that's two strikes. We got one more. And it wasn't that they died accidentally. It was that God took them. You see, God had a plan. It involved the future of the generations of the patriarchy of Israel and especially of Judah because God's son was supposed to be born through that line and Onan was frustrating God's plan. God's plans cannot and will not be thwarted. Isn't it interesting to note, and I and I thought of this, that God did not take the Canaanite woman Tamar. Here was Judah marrying into an accursed people group. Why didn't God kill Tamar? Why didn't God go, um, this should not happen. This is going very sideways. The Messiah is coming out of this line. I got to get rid of this Canaanite woman. No, he killed Ur and then he killed Onan. And God would have been able to foresee the actions that Tamar was going to eventually take in order to conceive that child. He could have easily intervened with Tamar, but he did not. I just think that's kind of extraordinary. Don't you often think, well, if I were God, I would have done it this way? But his word says that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And I think about this. I think about this woman, Tamar, who was so violated and abused. Okay, yeah, she was a Canaanite woman, but God saw her. And we talked about that with Hagar. God saw her. He saw Tamar as well. He chose not to kill her. With Onan dead, the responsibility for marriage to Tamar now fell to Judah's third son, Shelah. And with two sons dead, Judah blamed Tamar and was terrified for the life of his one remaining son. So he sent Tamar back to her father's house, though she was still Judah's property, to live as a widow, betrothed to Shelah until such time as Shelah was old enough to get married. Well... She couldn't just get on with her life, maybe go to university and get a degree and start over with a new career. Talk about being stuck. Here she is, married to two wicked men, twice widowed, used, taken advantage of, disgraced by childlessness, and therefore considered defective and renowned as the woman who caused the death of the two men that she'd been married to. Sent home to her old life, yet never, ever, ever free to really live it. Caught in an impossible limbo as Judah's possession, waiting for the marriage to this third son, and at the rate those sons were going, this was not a happy prospect. They went from bad to worse, and it was becoming abundantly clear that Judah wasn't going to make good on his promise at all. Because the years were passing, and in fact, what was happening was Judah was sinning grievously against this daughter-in-law. And we don't understand the full impact of this because we might be mistaken in our impression of just how long this period was. So we might think, well, you know, maybe she was married to Ur for a year and then he died and then she got married to Onan and that only lasted a year. And so a couple of years later she got sent to her family. Do you know what the time period was between her marriage to Ur and the moment where she finally took action? Are you ready for this? Twenty years. That changes things a little, doesn't it? This woman sat in limbo. In widow's garments, totally mistreated, totally passed off, totally rejected, ill-used, violated, considered as nothing for 20 years. That's the approximation of the commentaries. 20 years. And suddenly when Judah's widow widowed, Tamar snaps into action. What was the trigger? Was it hitting the 20-year mark? I don't know. Was it the news that Judah was a widow? Was it the news that he was traveling nearby to shear the sheep? The Bible doesn't say. But she had a plan, and now she had an opportunity. She would have understood that the at Law at that time actually placed the responsibility for her conceiving a child on the father-in-law. It was his job to look after that. To save the family line. So her plan was to trap him and to force him to make good on the lever at law. Her plan was to pose and veil herself as a prostitute, wait by the side of the road as Judah passed by. She knew Judah's character. I mean, she could have done this and Judah might have just passed by and thought, oh, there's a prostitute. I'm not going there. But she knew Judah. She knew that he was an unfaithful, promiscuous, hard, and callous man. She knew that he was a sitting duck. She knew that he would take one look at her and want to go with her, which is, in fact, what he did. He took one look at her, and the first words out of his mouth were, come now, let me sleep with you, which is what he did. I find myself wondering, was this an act of revenge on Tamar's part? But really, it would have been a very short-lived revenge, right? Because when she got pregnant, she would be killed. So the revenge wouldn't be very long-lived. And also, conceiving a child would have benefited Judah. So that's not very logical in terms of revenge. Was it desperation for a child that she didn't want to bear the reproach of childlessness? That's really not enough reason to risk your life. Because, again, if she was caught being pregnant she would be killed was it out of love and loyalty to er that she carry on earth's family name i don't think so we can rule that one out none of these motives could satisfactorily propel her to do something that would have caused her to risk her life why go through the risk of all this to conceive a child only to lose it when you're killed was it that she carried just so deeply within herself a fiery motivation to produce an heir to secure her future in the line of Judah, a yearning and a purpose that didn't die over 20 years, but just grew and grew and grew. Those years of waiting in her father's house, why didn't she just fold and give up? She was safe and looked after in her father's house. Why wasn't that good enough for her? Why didn't she just make like a helpless woman and be done with the unrighteous Judah and his unrighteous son and all things Abrahamic conceding the battle to that awful and powerful man? Why not? I think many of us probably would have lived out our days in our black clothes in our father's house. But Judah's line was facing extinction, and with it, her extinction. And the only one that seemed in any way inclined to save this family line was Tamar. And I'm not convinced it was for Judah's sake that she planned this, but one thing we do know, she was bound and determined that she was going to save that line and have that child. She would not be denied, and she went to extreme lengths when the opportunity presented itself. This wasn't a spontaneous act of impulse. I think it was a fire in her bones. The line of Judah was so critical to the purposes of God. It was the line from which King David himself would spring. And it was the line that the son of David would arise, the Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There was no more important line than this one. And I truly believe that there was fire in the heart of God himself for this line to be preserved. Remember that he killed Onan for thwarting his purposes. Was this purpose of God something that filled Tamar and would not let her go? Yeah, her strategy was very unconventionable and not recommended. I don't, I don't know that what she did was God's idea. It certainly never says that in the scripture. But neither was Sarah's idea of having Ishmael and going through Hagar, right? And yet God somehow, in all of our frailty and all of our choices, he uses those things when we choose to align ourselves with them. He uses those things for his glory and for his purposes to continue. We find this woman Tamar advancing the cause of God and we learn through a number of indicators that Tamar was in fact lined up with the purposes of God when no one else was. Three months later when they're d- discovered she's pregnant, Judah condemns her and things start escalating. He, he says, bring her out, we're going to burn her alive. But Judah had sabotaged himself. We had given Tamar his signet cord, his staff as a pledge for his payment of her services because he didn't have any money. So he gave her his staff, his signet, and his cord. That's basically like handing over your passport, your driver's license, all your personal ID, everything that really matters, your symbols of authority, everything that defines who you are. He gave it to her as a pledge while he could gather a goat for her to pay her for her services. Anyway, she comes there. She produces these things. She says, the man who owns these things is the father of this child and he acknowledges the truth and he makes this very powerful statement she is more righteous than I that one phrase says it all Judah acknowledges that his behavior was unrighteous and that Tamar's behavior was righteous there was a rightness about her and the rightness about the thing she desired and pursued at all costs the word righteous is not handed out easily to people in the Old Testament, especially Canaanites. But here she's called righteous as one who sides with God, as one who lines up with him, the one who is altogether righteous. And then we find out, and Carolyn James writes this in the book, that that in Ruth chapter 4, this wonderful chapter where Ruth marries Boaz, there's this blessing prayer that is prayed over this couple and it says moreover may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah Perez they, she actually had twins Tamar had a set of twins and the firstborn was Perez and here they pray a blessing prayer over the couple that uses Tamar's name the name is not used as a curse The name is not hidden as the dark family secret. It's a blessing designed and intended to honor the bride and groom. And then Carolyn James adds, the King David actually named one of his daughters Tamar. That's a very significant thing. And of course, like we said at the beginning, Tamar is named in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew as a forerunner to the king. Carolyn James calls Tamar an Azar warrior who pulled off a rescue. And in fact, she did pull off a rescue. She rescued Judah's line from extinction. The commentator Thomas Constable says, just as the seed of Abraham was protected by the righteous Abimelech, remember when Abraham passed off his wife, Sarah? It is the woman Tamar, not Judah, who is ultimately responsible for the survival of the descendants of the house of Judah. But not only did she rescue the family line, she jolted Judah profoundly into a moment of self-realization and what seemed like genuine repentance. A transformation began to work in this hard, ugly, calloused, backslidden, jealous, murderous man. He himself was rescued. This was evidenced In the relating to Joseph in Egypt, when Benjamin's life is threatened, Judah himself now, instead of being murderous, volunteers to die in Benjamin's place. He's had a 180-degree turnaround. Because Judah humbled himself, God raised him up to be the chief of the house of Israel, and he blessed the children that he fathered, even though they were a result of his sin. Perez, Tamar's son, grew and prospered into a mighty family, And became the father of, guess who? The Bethlehemites. But out of you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small, out of you shall come forth a ruler. Out of you shall come forth a ruler in Israel. Perez, the father of the Bethlehemites. I think that's so precious. In all the biographical sketches in Genesis, it's all about people transformation. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. The cocky Joseph became a wise statesman. And Judah changed from being backslidden to repenting and turning back to God. And God produced this in Judah because it was vital importance to him and his, that his son would be born from that line. But he used the Azer, Tamar, to produce this. Tamar's actions provoked and turned Judah's heart. She didn't rob him of his manhood, but made him a better man. Tamar didn't corrupt the line of Christ. She rescued it. And this brings me back to what I started to say at the beginning of this evening. The Bible does talk to us about strong women. I know this is a very unorthodox woman to glean some of this from, but we really do need to pay attention to Tamar. Matthew does. We need to have a full picture of which having a meek and quiet spirit is a part, but there are other aspects to women that the Bible honors, and we have to take the time to examine it. The Bible gives us clear pictures that we have the capacity to be strong. To be righteous, to be assertive in our righteousness, to be purposeful, to be courageous, to challenge sin, to take action against it, not to roll over and collapse in despondency where we're on the receiving end of someone else sinning against us. To take action when God's purposes are at stake. To fight for our family line. That it doesn't die out physically or spiritually praying for our children, discipling them, teaching them to hear God, to align ourselves with God, to be great theologians and know what he aligns with. So we can align ourselves with that to know and love his word, to take risks that might prove sacrificial. Righteous strength is vital in our families, and it's vital in the church, and it's vital in the world. Righteous strength changes situations. It rescues people. It moves with God to move things and move people onto his agenda. It's the azar nature to battle for what is right and not roll over in passivity and complacency, but we must first know what is right so we can align ourselves with what's right, battling for that, not just battling for what we think is right or what we want. We must reflect God's heart in everything we shoulder ourselves into so that we are on track with the purposes of God it is the Azir nature not to wallow in bitterness and disappointment, but to boldly pursue what God puts in your heart. It's the Azer nature not to get quagmired in victim mentality. So often women can become hurt, offended, nursing and rehearsing our wounds and making them the main thing. And how many Christian women have become sidelined because of offenses with others and would become bitter and useless. Tamar could have become all of these things, but she did not. We are Azer warriors. May we be found to be righteous, battling for the purposes of God in our homes, in our workplaces, in our marriages, and in our cities. And I believe those are some of the things that we can take away from this woman named Tamar. And, and not discount her because of her strategy, but to look at that thing within her, that fire that aligned herself with what was right. I just want to take um, 10 minutes. I want to introduce you to Marlene Schrader, if you wouldn't mind coming up, Marlene. This is one of my heroes and one of my dear friends. Marlene, you came here when? 16 years ago. ago. Marlene has an extraordinary story and I asked her to share it with us tonight. It's obviously not like Tamar's, in fact, God forbid any of us have her story, and may we never have to repeat that. Not recommended. But Marlene, when I was asking, Lord, I want to have a contemporary, like not everybody can relate to Tamar, yes? To what she did, what she went through. Those things are not our portion in our everyday, you know, 2017 life. But who can we relate to? What can we what can we take from this? What can we glean? What can we walk in? And I just when I asked the Lord, who can share? Marlene Schrader came to my mind, and I'd love you to just listen to her story.
1: Last time we met, uh, one of the questions that was asked uh, was, "What what question is God asking you to engage you?" And what I heard God say, and I wrote down, G I I just, I just. saw this today and God said to me why are you hiding and I said I'm scared of rejection again I'm scared of my voice and being branded opinionated so anyways um, somebody came up to me good Friday and said you need to tell the whole story and that was just a confirmation Okay, so here's the whole story I accepted Jesus as my savior when I was four years old I grew up very sheltered and very naive. I was known as the shy, quiet girl, and when I was practicing on one of my daughters, she laughed. She said, really? (laughs) When I was... I was. When I was 19, I'd been in a relationship with a boyfriend for several years, and I expected that we would get married. He was pressuring me to have a sexual relationship with him, and after a lot of pressure, I gave in, always feeling guilty. This relationship ended suddenly when I went on a weekend trip to Grand Forks with my parents after he had repeatedly told me not to. And when I came back, he was out with another girl who he eventually married. I made my... Okay, a few years after this, I met my husband. And I made my second mistake. I didn't tell him. He was a youth pastor in Vancouver, and it was hard to communicate as I lived in Winnipeg. And I rationalized that I had paid, I had repented, and God had forgiven me. But the problem was I couldn't forgive myself. We got married, and I lived with the shame and much self-condemnation. Seven years later, when I finally confessed to my husband, he forgave me, and we had a very good marriage. But Satan, he loves to use hidden things. After 20 years of marriage, my husband really felt that God was about to unleash judgment and condemnation on the church in North America. We stopped going to church. We were in a very small house group that kept getting smaller and smaller as people left till there was only my husband, myself, and two women who labeled themselves as prophetic and uh, were very um, opinionated. Okay. Um, and you know, Satan loves to isolate us before he attacks. And Harold was told that because our marriage had been built on fraud, on lies, God could not use us together in any ministry. And Harold really desired to get back into full-time Christian ministry, and he was told that God had a higher calling for him that he could not accomplish if we were together. And so he chose to believe that. I was devastated. My greatest desire was to bring people to Jesus and minister to them and I mistakenly thought that God's plan for me um, and my dream of fruit would die with the death of my marriage. I had heard so much about judgment that when my husband decided he had nothing left to give to our marriage and declared that if he had known, he would have never married me, I had a choice. Live in bitterness and turn away from God or run into God's arms. I turned to God. I began studying the scripture because I needed and wanted to hear God for myself. Before, I'd let my husband make the decisions because he was the spiritual head of the household. And I couldn't do that because I knew he was being deceived. Um, At one point, these women said that we had to separate for three months and then they would marry us and then, uh, you know, maybe things would work out. And when Harold left, I started really studying the Bible and I went back to these women, and I said, this is not what the Bible says. Then they went to my husband and said, this woman, this woman will never come under your control. This marriage is not going to work. You need to leave her now. It's never going to work. So I turned to God. I began studying the scriptures. I needed to hear God before. Oh, okay. I said this already. When we were separated, God, it be, when we were separated, God began to validate me as a person not just as Harold's wife. I began to grow stronger and I became a fighter for myself and for my children. I was not going to let Satan win and in the process destroy my children. God gave me a verse from Hebrews that I hung on to. So do not throw away your confidence. You will be richly rewarded and uh, you need to persevere. And when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And what he promised me was fruit. And abundant life. So I kept praying and believing that God's story for me was not over yet. Another verse I recited as I walked and did battle every morning to calm my anxiety was, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. The kids and I immediately began going back to church. I knew I couldn't do this without the support of a church family. Every Sunday, I would go and borrow uh, sermon tapes and I played them while I worked because Satan kept whispering lies to me about my wretchedness and about the worthlessness of my life. And I needed to combat those lies by truth from God's Word. Those headphones became my helmet of salvation. I was not able to use my teaching degree in B.C. where we lived, and so I was cleaning houses one day after I'd been sick for a few days. I was lying on my couch, and I was worrying, full of anxiety. If I didn't work, I didn't get paid, and we were already so short on money. My son Jonathan, who was 10 at the time, walked into the room, and he was humming. He was humming a song, and I said, John, what are you humming? And he said, I don't know. It's just a song in my head. I don't even know what song it is. But I knew the song. It was great is thy faithfulness. Some of the words are morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And another line says, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand besides. Another Bible verse God gave me found right in the middle of Jeremiah, a book I thought was all about judgment. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I thought judgment. God thought a hope and a future. God gave me back my future. My parents wanted the kids and I to move back to Winnipeg where most of my family lived but I was afraid if I moved away that that would kill any hope of my marriage ever being saved which I was still praying for. My husband is actually a lovely, my ex-husband is actually a lovely man and I wanted to hang on to that hope that God would save our marriage. But God moved so many mountains that I knew he was opening doors here for us with um, in Winnipeg. Um, so my four children and I moved back to Winnipeg where I had miraculously gotten a job with the King School. See, I had no emotional energy at that time. My parents said, you know, apply. Maybe you can get a job here. And I looked at those application forms and I said, I just can't do this. So I sent out one resume. I reasoned that if God really wanted us here in Winnipeg, one resume would do as well as 100. And here I am. I knew I couldn't raise my children on my own, so I kept leaning into God and asking him to be a father to my children. He did a really good job. My children are passionate. All of them are passionate followers of Jesus. But there was still so much shame that I carried. Never in my life did I think that I could be used by God again, especially now as a divorced woman and the stigma that that carries. But God, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as victims of our past Our past does not define us. The messes we've made do not take away our value to God or take away our future. He sees us as his masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we could do the good things he planned for us to do. When I spent a few months away in California a few years ago, God's word to me was restoration. After he gave me that word, one morning I went to pick up a newspaper from the front door, and there in big, bold letters across the front page it said, Restoration Begins. It was talking about a town that had just burned down, but God was talking to me. I have a picture. It's that one up there, the blue one. It's the darkness on the outside. When I saw that picture, I loved it right away. It was at an um, auction that John was, it was It was an art auction to support John Phillips' work in Winnipeg with prostitutes. And um, it was a silent auction, so you go bid and you never know if you're going to get it. Um, this picture is dark, but there's a light bursting forth from the center. It's like the light that God gives us when he creates us anew. Imagine what I felt when John announced from the stage, and restoration goes to Marlene Schrader. That Painting is called restoration. Crazy the way God talks to us. It was so beautiful I wanted to hang it in my living room, but somehow it didn't seem to fit there. Then I heard God whisper, it's supposed to be in your bedroom. God begins restoration in our most intimate places and the places that we like to keep Hidden with the things that we want to keep hidden, but he wants to restore. The places we've been deeply hurt, and as we turn to God, he restores us so that we can commune with him and become the strong women he created us to be. I'm so grateful that there are women in the Bible who had a past, but God didn't reject them. This Saturday, as I was preparing this, and I was mulling it over in my head again, because I had to make it shorter. There's so much to tell. God said to me, I'm not ashamed of you. And so I realized that God was not ashamed of these women, but he chose to use them in the family line of his son. I read this in the prayer furnace on Good Friday. It's right beside a vision that God gave Dwayne Charsky. It says, we're living in a day when God is restoring what Satan has stolen. God is doing an incredible work and is placing in the hearts of his people a hunger to recover our lost inheritance. God is awakening believers around the world who are hearing his voice. And then Wayne goes on to create to quote Isaiah 60, Arise, shine. I've been working at the King School for 15 years. and not, or Well, this is my 16th year. And um, for my 15th year of service, they gave me a picture. That one there, Awake. Arise, shine. And um, that's the truth. We need to wake up. It's been my life's ver- like my, my vision statement for several years. We need to wake up. We need to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And then we need to get up, and we need to shine. Last, oh OK. This one hangs in my living room, because it's a daily reminder of what God wants us to do. Not hide, but shine.
0: Yeah, I want to just reiterate that, Marlene. God is not ashamed of you. And not only are, you know, is, is the people that, of God that God has placed around you not ashamed of you, we admire and esteem you so highly in, in absolutely every way. When I think about a strong woman, I think about Marlene Schrader. This woman is an Azair, and I have watched her. Azair, others, I have watched her. Azair, Karis, and Christine, and John, who's such a prince, and married a princess. I think she's here, so I don't know where you are. There you are. And Kia. And we love these four so much and just see such a grace on their lives, as they walk with God. And I know it was that the Lord opened up the windows of heaven on this woman who was so completely exhausted and so completely rejected. And he worked with her and he filled her with her strength and she stood and she walked and she carried on and she's leaving a legacy in countless students in her class as anyone who works at the King School, we all know that, right? It's just absolutely extraordinary, and in the lives of her children and her children's children, and we love that and honor that so much, Marlene. That's what it is to be a strong woman. We're all going to be in situations in our lives where where we need to hear God, when we need to understand what he's saying, when we're faced with challenges with our spouses or with our workplace or with our children. That we need to hear God because we need to have wisdom. Lord, how do I respond in this? Again, remember that we're not rescuers in the sense of rescuing our, our families out of situations where God wants to do something in their lives. But we're rescuers in the right sense of the word when it comes to sin. And we need to hear God. Lord, how do you want me to respond in this situation? I think of a, just a quick story of a woman that I knew who, um, whose husband just suddenly left her out of the blue. I mean, it was so shocking and so spontaneous. And there was no return. There was no dialogue. There was no, wait a minute. Can we have some process here? What happened? Well, what ended up happening, what we found out from her later, was it had begun very subtly. He had begun to be involved in pornography. And that road just carried on, and that road just carried on. And finally it led to visits with prostitutes. And this whole time he would say, well, don't say anything, or, you know, that we can work this out. And he'd he'd feel bad, and he'd say, you know, I feel bad. And he'd confess to her, and they'd pray together, and he'd say, don't talk about it. And she didn't talk about it. And she didn't know how to azer her man. Ladies, we need to know how to azer our man. That's why we were created. We were created to be azares. If you are a wife today, you need to know how to be an azer to that man. And sometimes being an is is being very strong and drawing a line in the sand and not being a pushover. She needed to have thrown out the flags and the alarms and sounded them all way, 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 long before he ever bolted. There was a long history that brought him to that point. And she could have arrested it. I believe that. God has things that he wants to say to us in these days. I'll tell you, the times are getting darker. Raising children is getting more and more complex is it not? If we have our kids in the school system, you just read, it's not even in the fine print on the websites anymore. It's very, very complicated. And we must be near him and hear him and say, Lord, how am I going to azare my child into the purposes of God and not fail them and, and seek to keep them on course? I hope that this chapter on Tamar has been somewhat helpful. I know it's a bit controversial, the subject matter, but I trust that you've been able to glean some things that will help you in whatever situation you're in because you take her in the context of the whole word of God. What does God say about his women and who he recognizes? It's important we take a look and find out why. We're a little bit over time. I'm so sorry. I'm going to read to you the small group questions, and then we're going to break. Um, we're going to do it a little bit differently today, uh, and we also have some small group. We had many who couldn't come today, so in a minute I'll read the small groups that of the people that couldn't come. But I'd like us to actually, in our small groups, you're each, did you all get one? Good. You're gonna, if you didn't get a piece of paper with the questions, you need to get one. We'll make sure Nicole gets something to you. We're going to take some time in our small groups just being quiet and not not talking initially. So we're going to work through some of those questions and jot down our answer. And after that, we will um, discuss them. In what ways did Tamar display that she was an Azer? These don't have to be long-winded. This Canaanite woman, Tamar, is in the direct lineage of the Messiah, son of God. Though God could have orchestrated this another way, he did not. What does this say about him? Tamar's bold actions had a profound effect on Judah and his life turned around. Are there ways, any ways in which you have had to act as an Nazar in a relationship or circumstance where there was unrighteousness? Define what you think it is to be a strong woman in the eyes of God and what adjustments do you need to make. We live in a diva culture. and When I say that, I mean, we all know what diva is, right? Just self-centered. You know, I'm at the center of the universe. Be nice to me. Say nice things to me. Do nice things for me. Make me feel good. Selfie, selfie, selfie. Selfie, selfie, selfie. It's all about me. Sorry, I'm so not a selfie fan. But that kind of just epitomizes our culture, does it not? And it's increasing. It's me, me, ego at the center. In what way we're going to ask him, Lord, is there any way in which I behave like a diva? Okay, I don't mean God's going to say, yes. stop taking the selfies. I don't want to get that shallow. To be honest, I can behave like a diva. Just ask Ron. He will give you a few ways right off the top of his head. We all do it. We all have our diva moments. We all have our diva defaults. And what that means is don't touch this area of my life. Don't, you know, I'm at the the center of this. This is, I'm important. It's all about me. Ladies, Azers are not divas. And God is wanting us to free, get free of some of these areas of our lives so we can walk in maturity and wholeness and not be anchored by these dead weights. So we're going to ask Him, Lord, is there any way in which I behave like a diva? What specifically do you want me to repent of? Ask him to show you specifically where he wants you to step up and walk in greater godly strength. Share with your group and pray with one another. There may be a relationship that you're in right now or a situation where God speaks to you and says, right here, this is what I want you to do. He will talk to you tonight. He is here. This matters. These things can have historical effect They can change futures. They can change people. They can change destinies. The choices you make tonight might change something very profound. So let's not pass it off as, you know, just, okay, I'll hear something and that's good enough. Earnestly ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? Okay? Bless you. Thank you for being so patient as we went a little late grab something to eat i'm gonna just list off ruth wall um pray for them terry's sister passed away um his other sister passed away i think a week ago he's just lost two sisters very very sad so ruth Wall's not here so her group um if somebody from her group would please come and take ruth's card christy epp is also not here we got we got three steinbackers missing mary uh he'll, Mariana Hildebrand, Lisa Clark, and Christy Up. I don't know. Maybe we could get all the Steinbackers together, or into two groups for Calvary Chapel. Um, And then there's Tina Clausen, also her group. She's not here, so if somebody from her group would like to take this. So let's grab five minutes to take, get some food, and then meet in your groups, and then we will gather. So in our groups, just to reiterate, please be quietly. Hearing the Lord first and then we'll talk.